We'll be looking at verse 10. You can use the Pew Bible in front of you. This is located on page 967. 967, if you're not used to reading a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Listen closely. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. My outline, I hope, is, is simple and would help you and help our time together. So if you want to take notes, uh, my sermon will be divided into three parts. First part is that grief needs to be discerned. Grief needs to be discerned. Point number two, godly grief is insufficient. Godly grief is insufficient. And lastly, we should take time to consider what the goal of godly grief is. Godly grief leads to something. And my prayer this morning for us as we consider God's word is that you, brothers and sisters, would be filled with a grief that is godly and that leads to salvation leads to salvation. Let's consider first now uh, discerning grief. Look back with me at verse 10. And if, if Paul did not say this to me, I probably would have never caught it. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I think there's a difference there clearly in that verse. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Now, I want us to take a minute and try to tease those two out. I'm going to try to be like a heart surgeon and get to the bottom of it. Which is grief according to God, as one translation puts it, and what is grief that is according to the world. I believe Calvin dis defines godly grief. Um, it, it's remorse that comes from a person when his eyes are directed towards God. His sorrow is focused on the Lord. I'm going to be using a lot of Old Testament uh, illustrations this morning. The Lord provides us two really good examples in the book of Samuel. I would encourage you this afternoon, after you've got your belly full, go home and read the book of Samuel out loud to your family. And I want you to notice the stark contrast between King David and Saul. David is the epitome of godly sorrow, whereas King Saul is not Remember with me, uh, David was not perfect. He had grave sin. But after Nathan the prophet had come to David 
and said, friend, you have sinned in an egregious way. David would later pin Psalm 51, which is maybe the best psalm of confession that we have. And it's such a wonderful example of godly sorrow. David says this, listen to me, against you, God, you only have I sinned. So we know that King David sinned against Bathsheba. We know that he sinned against Uriah and, and their families. But he's saying, Lord, my chief problem, my, the worst part about this sin that I've committed is that it's against you. It's against you, O oh Lord. I have blasphemed your name. I have uh, not reflected your goodness to the Gentiles and to the, and to the Israelites like I should have. Friends, that is the cornerstone. That is the, the main emphasis I want to show you this morning, is that godly grief has an eye on God. It has an eye on God. Okay, but now let's contrast, okay? Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Godly sorrow looks at God, but worldly sorrow has its eyes only on the horizon, but it never looks up. Worldly sorrow um, is the man who only experiences remorse from the affliction from his sin or the consequences of his sin. Do you, do you see that distinct difference? The, the worldly man only cares that his sin has been found out. Now, we could use many examples, but you take a man who has committed murder or something terrible here in the United States, and he, he gets the verdict from the judge that he should spend the rest of his life in jail. Do you not think for a second that he will remorse? That he will be grieved? That he will surely shed a tear? But that man will only grieve because of the consequence of his sin. The worldly man will never think uh, that what he's done has been a great disservice to the Lord. So I hope you see that. I hope you see that. Um, that godly grief is aimed and geared. Uh, the, the focal point of godly grief is God himself. But to continue on teasing out these differences, I want you to know that godly grief also takes responsibility for sin. This afternoon, when you read the book of Samuel, you'll read a story about King Saul. He's out in the battlefield fighting the Philistines, and he and his men get separated, and they get sent to the caves. And Samuel, the prophet, gives Saul instructions on what to do. He says, wait seven days until I get to you. And then we will perform a sacrifice and seek the favor of the Lord. But in the midst of that, uh, King Saul gets really rash and hasty. And he goes ahead and commits the sacrifice. And Samuel the prophet gets to him and says, what have you done? You have not listened to me, but you have disobeyed the Lord. And this is really insightful. King Saul immediately replies 
by saying, uh, the, 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 the people of Israel caused me to do this. The, the people of Israel were causing me to be, be fearful. And then he blames Samuel. He says, Samuel, you didn't even come in time. So you see, I mean, he is remorseful, but he is not taking responsibility for his sin. Whereas King David, when Nathan tells him of his sin, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's on me and no one else. So godly grief takes responsibility. But to continue on, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, those of you that are outside of Christ, that godly grief is a grace of God. It is a grace of God. What I mean by that is that godly grief is not something that can be manufactured or stirred up on your own strength on the inside. Um, it must be the Lord giving you that new heart that causes you to grieve in a godly way. Um, so, you would, you would definitely misunderstand Paul and you would definitely misunderstand me if you came away from the sermon saying, well, we just got to be sad and we'll be saved. Um, that, that's not it at all. Um, but godly grief does come from God himself. So I hope you see a little bit of the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Uh, remember that worldly grief has its eyes upon the Lord. Uh, children, if there are any children in here, and you can hear me and understand me, um, hopefully if you have godly parents, they will discipline you. And I know that you will uh, be remorseful for a time. Um, you'll probably weep. Um, but I want you to know that your greatest sin is not so much the dumb thing that you've done, but it's probably, it's because you've sinned against the Lord and, and you've dishonored your parents. Um, so even now as a young age, at a young age, begin to discern what's in your heart. What is the cause of my grief? Is it, is it because I love the Lord? Or is it because I'm going to get a spanking? And so the same applies to adults. We ought to grieve over our sin because of God. And I, I want to say this too. I think there is a presupposition. There's something that precedes this godly grief. And I think it is a love for God, right? We are grieved because whatever we're experiencing, whatever we have done or committed is contrary to the one that we love, right? We grieve because our sin is contrary to God. So what does your grief flow from? Is it a love from God, a love for God, a love for his glory? Or is your worldly sorrow simply just, uh, it's selfish. It's worried about the affliction and the pain that you're going to experience because of your sin. I want to continue on just thinking about grief in general. Um, grief is, is not that which saves you. 
everybody can be sad. Um, grief does not save you. Uh, but, but point number two, let's, let's move on to point number two, the insufficiency of grief. Look back with me um, in verse 10. This godly grief, if we have it, it produces something in us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance. So point number two, the insufficiency of grief. If, if, if sadness won us to God, then heaven would be crowded. Judas wept after he betrayed Christ. Uh, but friends, he did not love the Lord, and he is not with him in glory. Uh, there was no repentance on, in his heart and on his behalf. And the same with Saul, too. So know that there is insufficiency with just grief. It must move on to something. It must move on to repentance. Um, my father is a cattle farmer. My grandfather is as well. So I was just home yesterday helping them sort cattle. And one thing farmers do to protect their cows is to put up electric fence. Maybe you've been on a farm, and maybe you've stumbled across electric fence, and you've been zapped. Um, I have, and it's, it's not a good feeling. But the, the pain that I, I have felt before by accidentally touching the, the, the electric fence is actually good, right? The pain was good. Why? Because it told me to back off the fence. And, and I think that's the same way that godly grief is. Um, grief in itself is a good thing. I think that's the Lord pressing it in on our conscience that we are in the wrong, um, that something needs to be fixed, a change needs to happen. So the pain that I felt grabbing the electric fence does not save me, but it does lead me to backing off the fence, okay? So grief is insufficient. Friends, what I pray, and this is what godly, what godly grief does, is it produces repentance. And, and I know that Pastor Dallas and, and the rest of your teachers are super faithful in teaching you this. Uh, but, but repentance is just a throwing off, a killing of sin, just completely turning away from it, but then turning to, to that which is your ultimate and greatest good, turning to God in Christ. That, that, friends, is repentance. So let's go back to the Old Testament. When, when you're reading through Samuel again this afternoon, I'm going to hold you accountable on that. You're going to see King Saul. And as the story goes on, he and David had this tumultuous re relationship. And it, it, King Saul forms this agenda that he wants to kill David. He becomes jealous over David and wants to end his life. And towards the end of 1 Samuel, we get three back-to-back -back stories uh, that I think are so fascinating. King David is the one who finds Saul. He goes to wherever uh, Saul's soldiers are camped out at, and, and the soldiers that are supposed to protect uh, King Saul are asleep. And, and David has the opportunity to kill Saul. But you'll, you'll hear this refrain, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. My hand will not be on the Lord's anointed. 
And so David won't kill him and he'll back up and he'll call out to Saul and say, Saul, Saul, why are you coming after a flea? Something so small as myself. What have I done to you? And, and, and for a second there, King Saul comes to his senses, right? I think one of the stories he begins to weep and says, David, you're right. You're right. You have done nothing to me. And so Saul stops pursuing David for a time. But friends, is there really any repentance in Saul? No. No. It's the next hour. It is the next day in which all that Saul has on his mind is bloodshed. He wants to kill David. Um, but a chapter later, I think this is 1 Samuel 25, David is put into a position where he wants to seek vengeance on someone that's done him wrong. Do you remember that story of Nabal? But Abigail, Nabal's wonderful, beautiful wife, comes to David and says, my husband is a fool, please do not kill him. David stops in his tracks right there. And he doesn't say, okay, Abigail, I won't kill him, and then goes off later and kills Nabal. But he stops, and he goes the opposite direction. Uh, it even says that his, his conscience is pricked, and that Abigail has kept him from bloodshed. So, friends, grief is not sufficient. But godly grief should lead us to repentance. Look with me back in the text in 2 Samuel. I mean, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. Um, right now, what we've been talking about is sort of an abstract concept, right? We can't really see it, but, but it doesn't end there. What is abstract really becomes concrete. So I know that we just jumped in 2 Corinthians, and you're, maybe you're fuzzy with the context. But Paul is like a spiritual father these Corinthians. And if you're familiar with the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know there's a ton of problems and a ton of sin. So Paul writes a letter to them, acting as a father, admonishing them, correcting them, telling them, hey, repent. Um, and, and while he sends that letter, you know, Paul just has to wait there, like, what's going to happen? Are these Corinthians going to listen to my advice and listen to my commands and turn back to the Lord? Or will they perish? Will they die in their sins? Um, but by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, he has heard good news from Titus. Um, Titus has spoken of the repentance. So look with me. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 11. What was abstract, what was a concept, is now concrete. It's something that we can see. Repentance is action, my friends. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Do you see this, friends? that their godly grief actually caused them to change and to do something. The sexual immorality that they were letting let linger in their congregation, they put that man out. They cared more about God's glory and holiness in their congregation than what this man thought. They were earnest. They were no longer apathetic towards their sin. 
But they got going. They were, they were turning away from sin. So friends, think, examine yourselves right now. Think about your sin throughout the week. Husbands, think about um, all the different times that you have spoken in a disrespectful and dishonoring way to your wife. And I know that you felt remorse uh, after that because she was in a terrible mood and you know, you, you've led your family in a wrong way. But friends, has that remorse caused you to change the way you speak? Wives too? Does the sorrow that you feel for sin cause you to change? It did for the Corinthians. It did for the Corinthians. Um, going back to grief, I'm, I'm going off the path right here. Going back to grief, I, I feel like in our culture and day and age, and especially people my age and younger, we have an allergy towards feeling anything, especially an allergy towards grief or sorrow or pain. What do we like to do? We like to turn on Netflix or scroll through Twitter and sort of numb ourselves. Oh, but friend, let your sorrow linger. Don't, don't escape. Um, whether it be, remember, the, the pain that I felt from the, the electric fence or the pain I feel from my moral failure and blaspheming against God, those two things actually point to deeper realities. There's something going on that's deeper. And we ought to let that sorrow push us to Christ. You can take your sorrow there to him. That is the safest place. That is the best place to take your grief and sorrow and your transgressions. Take it to Christ. So first, we saw that godly grief stems from a love for God. It stems from an eye towards God. But then secondly, we saw that, that grief in itself was insufficient. If we are to have godly grief, um, it, is, it is to push us to repentance. It is to push us to change, to flee from sin, and to take hold of Christ. But now I want to move to the third point. The goal of grief. The goal of grief. Um, this is the whole reason that Paul is rejoicing in our passage right now. It says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So, the godly grief led to repenting. Now, let me clarify myself before you guys bring pitchforks and try to kill me. The foundation, friends, of our, our salvation, the cornerstone of it all, is not, is not in our doing, right? It's not in our repentance. It's in Christ. It's in the good, the good news that God the Father would send His Son, His only Son, to come to earth, to take on flesh, to take on the burden of sin, to take on our grief and sorrow. And friends, He was put on a cross. He was counted accursed in our place. 
and he would die on that cross. And three days later, he would be raised, vindicating all of his claims that he was making during his earthly ministry. In his resurrection, he, was, he proved to everyone that he was a faithful Savior and, and someone worthy to be trusted, someone worthy to throw all of our weight and hope upon. Friends, that's the gospel. We have sinned against God and we are worthy of damnation. We are worthy of an eternity in hell. But God made a way in Christ. Friends, linger, linger near the cross. As the hymn goes, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a fountain flowing. It's there in Christ that we have our hope. But I want you to see in the text that this godly grief produces a repentance, and this repentance, it, it brings us to salvation. Uh, I think it's Thomas Watson, famous Puritan, he says that faith and repentance are the dual wings which fly us to heaven, right? Faith and repentance is how Christ's blood his death and his resurrection is applied to us. Friends, if you want the comfort of your sins forgiven, if you want life, true life, with Christ, you have no other option but to turn from your sins and to trust in him, to put your faith in him. The goal of grief is salvation without regret. I, I think this is... This is an interesting word choice. I mean, it's, I don't know Greek, so I'm not going to teach you Greek. But it's in there. I think some translations use, verse 10, it leads to a salvation without repentance. In other words, you are never going to repent from repenting. You will never, ever regret turning to Christ and from your sins. Friends, I think thinking about godly grief, this is a test for us to see whether we are truly in the faith or not. Um, I think this is why Paul was so anxious, because he was, he was waiting to see how the Corinthians would respond to him. Will they have faith? Will they turn to the Lord? Or will they continue in sin? So ask yourselves, is your, is your life marked by godly grief? Does this godly grief produce a repentance, a repentant heart in you? If it does, then you can be assured of your salvation. You can be assured that you, that you are one with Christ. Uh, repentance, friends, is, it is the, the, key, the chief characteristic of all Christians. Uh, Pastor Lucas was preaching the other week, and I think he was talking about England somewhere where the gospel has been preached um, tremendously, but the people have grown apathetic. Um, and so the way that the atheists and agnostics distinguish quote-unquote Christians from real Christians, fake Christians from real Christians, is that they call real Christians repenters. That's what marks the Christian. So husbands... I want to speak to you for a second. I keep harping on you, but I truly believe that where the husband goes, where the father goes, so does the household. 
you are going to lead your family in many things, whether it be grilling or learning how to make a jump shot. Um, you're just, you're just going to lead in numerous things. But friend, when your children grow up and they look back on how you raise them, they might remember your funny sense of humor and how you taught them to change the oil. But will they remember how you led your family in repentance? Will they remember that you even confessed your sins to the family and that, and that you actually did something about it? You changed, but you just didn't keep persisting in that pattern. Fathers, be the leaders in the household when it comes to repenting. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. I want to finish by thinking about application. You know, you've heard that godly grief is, is pointed to God. Uh, you've heard that godly grief leads to repentance and that this repentance leads to salvation. How can we put this text into practice? Well, I think, number one, you ought to examine yourselves. I think often people are deluded and deceived into thinking they, they are with Christ. Uh, but as Augustine famously said one time, repentance has led many to hell. And it's not genuine repentance that he's talking about, but it's a, a fake surface level uh, form of repentance. So examine yourselves. Take time away from the TV and lay God's word before you. I think, I think this is the chief way in which God does this. He helps us see our sin by looking at this wonderful mirror, which reveals all of our imperfections. It reveals all of our terrible desires, and it shows us the holiness of God. So number one, examine yourselves. But number two, friends, and I don't want to sound generic in this, but you have to look at Christ. Brothers and sisters, you're still sinning. I know you are. But there in Christ, um, you have a fountain flowing with mercy. God is so um, tremendously eager and happy to bestow mercy on his children. If, if you, you ought to go to him and take your grief and your sorrow. He, he understands it. The, the Hebrew writer says, because he is acquainted with our flesh and he has walked on this earth, uh, with us, uh, he has sympathy. He, he knows the pain of sin. He knows the sting of sin. So you ought to go to him and keep going to him. Go to Christ. If you are not a believer this morning and you have questions about the gospel, talk to someone here. Talk to Aaron. Talk to Clark. Um, you ought not leave here without knowing the good news. Thirdly, thinking back about our text, friends, brothers and sisters, I want you to be a church that is willing to give godly grief. Okay, so I'm not saying make your brothers and sisters sin. What I'm saying is you ought to love your brothers and sisters so much that you're willing to go to them like Nathan went to David. And Jonathan went to David and said, friend, brother, I see this sin in your life. You need to turn back to Christ. This, this is exactly what Paul was doing with the Corinthians. He was showing them their sin. 
and they responded well. So, do you guys know each other well enough to do that? To call each other's sin out in a loving, gracious way? I pray that you're a church that is able to do that. We're not pointing out sin to mock or to make fun of, but we're pointing out sin for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of repentance and restoration. That's why God gave us each other, right? Amen? Every Christian ought to be a, a, a member of a local church, a body that you're covenanting with, that you're um, held accountable to. Um, local churches keep Christians holy. They really do. So if you're not, join. So we ought to give godly grief, but friends, the back half is we ought to receive godly grief. Um, there's a story about David Brainerd. Have you heard of him? Maybe not. That, that's, a, that's a mistake on Dallas's part. I'm going to get on to him later. Anyways, it's a biography and diary that you can read. Uh, the Life and Diary of David Brainerd. You can look that up on Banner of Truth. Really zealous, holy young man. Uh, he, he commits the rest of his life to reaching the Indians in the New England area during the time of Jonathan Edwards. So, anyways, super holy guy. There's something I, I remember in his diary. He says, I was met with reproof or a rebuke from a friend. And although I thought I was not deserving of it, I trust that God was making me more watchful over myself. God was making me more tenderly afraid of sin that I might keep a better watch over myself and keep my conduct and my heart both pure and blameless. Do you see that attitude that David had? He was willing to take on rebuke. He was willing to take on criticism um, just so that God's name could be kept holy. So, are you the kind of person that someone can come up to and, be, and they can rebuke you? Or are you closed off? Are you prideful? Are you like a King Saul? For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I pray that you know something of this godly grief. I pray that you know something of Christ and, and what it means to repent. I pray that you are found with our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we desire this godly grief. We desire for you to rot it in us. And Father, we pray that this godly grief would lead us onward to repentance. And that we would prove that we are one of your children because we turn from sin and turn to you. So God, give us eyes that see, eyes that discern. Give us other brothers and sisters who can speak into our life and help us walk with you. Father, bind us to your Son that we may have life. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.